Children's Church as well, so all children through the third grade can head on out. Luke chapter 8 is where we will be this morning. Also want to just give a word of uh, announcement, just invite um, each of you to come back tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to have our question and answer time, so come back with your questions, maybe about what you've read in Scripture this week, maybe a news story you encountered, you're like, how as a Christian should I be thinking about what's going on in our world Maybe there's some theology thing you've been wrestling with, something you came across on Facebook. We want to be a church where it is okay to ask questions. This is not a place where you have to come and pretend that you have it all together, where you have to pretend to have all the answers, but this is a place where I want us to have open conversation, that if you have doubts, you've got questions, you come here tonight and you ask those, we will not judge you. There are no bad questions except the ones that are unasked, or the questions that are asked with a heart of cynicism, right? You know, the difference between the, the question, you know, where a teenager asks mom, well, why do we have to, I don't mean those questions, but the, the questions that are seeking for answers and looking for truth, we invite that every Sunday night at Q&A time. And then diving back into to 1 Timothy 4, uh, or 1 Timothy 3, rather, finishing out that chapter, looking at what the church is. So we just invite you to be back here tonight um, for our time together. Uh, Pastor Ryan, could you go and grab me a bottle of water? I forgot to get one this morning. And uh, I drink a bunch of coffee, my mouth is drying out, and I'll be wheezing here in just a minute. All right, Luke chapter 8 is where we are in our, in our Bibles, and we'll be looking at verses 26 down to 39, a, a longer uh, paragraph today, uh, but an awesome paragraph that really, um, what our singing was all about today, about the, the transformation that the gospel works in our hearts. So First Timothy, or First Timothy, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 8. My brain is a little jumbled here. Forgive me. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 26. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. If you remember last week, they did a, uh, a nighttime crossing of the Sea of Galilee, right? The storm, Jesus calms the storm. Been a long night, and it's finally morning time. The boat arrives on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, some texts have Gadarenes, some have Gergesenes, some have various readings here. Basically, we're the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We're in Gentile territory. This is no longer Jewish territory. This is Jesus going into non-Jewish territory, going into pagan territory, going into a place that is dominated by Satan, dominated by paganism. Verse 27, And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils, which had demons, literally the word there, a long time, and he wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. Here's a guy who's demon-possessed. By the way, Matthew's gospel tells us there's two men. Both Mark and Luke are going to emphasize and focus on this one particular guy. So there's, there's two of them, but there's one of them in particular that stands out. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, he shrieked, he screamed, and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he, that is Jesus, had already commanded the unclean spirit, that's the demon, to come out of the man. For oftentimes it, the demon, had caught him, had seized him. And he was kept bound with chains and in fetters. And he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness, into desert places. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many demons were entered into him. And they, the demons, besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep, into the abyss. And there was there an herd of many swine feeding on the mountainside. And they, the demons, besought him, begged him that he would suffer, he would permit, he would allow them to enter into them. And he permitted them, he suffered them. Then went the demons out of the man and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place, down a cliff literally, into the lake and were choked. And they that fed them saw what was done. They fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the demons were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also which saw it told them by what means he that was possessed of the demons was healed. In other words, that's how they heard these people had reported it back, that Jesus had delivered him. Then... The whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. And he went up into the ship and returned back again. Now, the man out of whom the demons were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house and show how great things God has done unto thee. And he went his way. 
and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto or done for him. Our world has an absolute fascination with the supernatural. Just look at the movies that have come out of recent years, and there's this, this fascination with the supernatural realm. That's why sort of, you know, the Harry Potter magic then, that was just the big thing like 10 years ago or however long ago that was. Everybody's watching Harry Potter and the, the magic and the, the supernatural realm. Or your Stephen King horror works. Or the superhero stuff. All that stuff's wildly popular. Why? Our world has a fascination with the supernatural realm. Right? Surveys have been done to show that the majority of Americans believe in spirits, believe in demons, believe in angels, believe even in ghosts. Uh, in fact, there's a, a hotel someone was telling me about down in downtown Mobile that everyone thinks is haunted, right? Everybody's got this, this fascination with the supernatural, with the demonic realm. We know there's a spiritual realm out there, and we're curious about it. In fact, if you go to the Christian bookstores, actually they don't exist anymore, but go online to Christian book distributors or Amazon, there is a plethora of books that have been written to try to explain how the demonic realm works, what angels do, what demons do, how they work, what their hierarchy is, and all of these things. But listen, everything we need to know about the demonic realm is given to us in Scripture, right? We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible gives us all that pertains to life and godliness, And when we approach a passage like this, sometimes our curiosity begins to be unbridled. We're like, well, what about this? And how do demons operate? And why are they going into pigs? And all of these things. There are some questions that we might want to ask that the Scripture does not answer for us. Everything we need to know about the demonic realm is in Scripture. Now, understand this up front. The demonic realm is real. This is not some figment of our imagination. This is not sort of the, 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 the working of a sort of pre-scientific society that was hyper-superstitious where they're like, well, there's stuff going on. It must be the demons and the goblins. No, d- the demonic activity is real. Satan is real, and he has legions of fallen angels who work under him and seek to do his wicked work in the world. There's a lot of elements in this text today that are unusual. As I read this story, there's some weird stuff going on, right? There's this, this dude who's literally a streaker in a graveyard. You're like, that's weird, this, this naked dude running down a mountain, shrieking at Jesus. That's weird, right? That's kind of strange. There's pigs, and 2,000 of them, by the way, according to Mark's account, they go running off a cliff into the sea. That's, that's actually hilarious if you think about it. These the demons are like, hey, we want to go into the pigs, and then boom, the pigs are oink, 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 off the cliff, glug, glug, glug into the ocean. It's a funny story in that regard. It's one of those stories that people have lots of questions about. They're like, if Jesus is good, why does he kill 2,000 pigs? That can't possibly be a good thing. He's destroying creation. All these questions that come up. It's easy in an account like this to become fixated on the demons, become fixated on the pigs. But here's my call to you. Let's be fixated on Jesus. See, he's the one who's at the center of this story. He's the one that this is all about. All these other elements are meant to point us to him. So I don't want this this message today to be so much about the demoniac or to be about the pigs. Those are elements in the story. I want this to be about Jesus. Just a reminder, the end of Luke chapter 8 gives us a series of accounts that paint for us the power of Jesus. That's what Luke is trying to prove to us. Luke's not just telling a story to be like, hey guys, here's a cool story about some pigs and a demon. Luke is giving this to us to, to prove to us, to convince us of the absolute authority, the absolute power of Jesus. He's God Almighty. He is omnipotent power. He can do anything. We saw last week that he's got authority over the wind and the waves. What manner of man is this? And even the winds and the waves obey him. He's got authority over creation. Why? He's the creator. In this account, we see that he has authority and power over evil, over Satan, over the demonic realm. Next week, we'll see this amazing sandwich of a story where Jesus heals a woman from a long-term illness and also raises a girl from the dead. So they're coming to a climax with authority over death. You say, who is this who has authority over disasters, over demons, over diseases, over death? Well, the one who is the God of life, the one who is the great physician, the one who rules over all things under whose feet even Satan bows the one who is the creator of the universe, the one who is very God of very God, very light of very light, to quote from the ancient creed. Now here's the point. If Jesus really is the Messiah, he's got to fulfill the prophecies that were made of the Messiah. 
the very, very first prophecy that was ever given about the Messiah. We've got to, we go back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, you don't need to turn there. But man falls. He rebels against God. Adam and Eve sin. The entire human race is condemned by God. And their, their, their sin natures are going to be passed on to all of their descendants. God then unleashes and, and announces a curse. He curses the ground for Adam's sake. He tells Eve that as a result of, the, of her sin, there's going to be pain in childbearing. And then there's a statement that's pronounced about the, the, about the serpent, right? That Satan had inhabited the serpent to tempt Eve. He says, you're going to go on your belly, you're going to eat dust. And then he makes this amazing promise in chapter 3 and verse 15 of Genesis. It says that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent. One day there's going to be someone, an individual, who's going to be a descendant from the woman, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He says, he's going to, he's going to bruise your heel, but he will crush your head. Right, there's going to be someone who's going to inflict a, a temporary, temporary pain on the seed of the woman, on this descendant, but he in turn will crush the head of the serpent. That, of course, is referring to Jesus. At the cross, at the, at the, when, when, when Jesus dies on the cross, his heel, in a sense, is bruised. It's a temporary wound. Three days later, he rises from the dead. But in the process, he crushes the head of the serpent. He's going to defeat Satan. We've already seen this, by the way. In the Gospel of Luke, remember the temptation in the wilderness? Satan comes out and he's, he's, he's trying to tempt Jesus in the same way that he tempted Adam. And Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. He, he defeats Satan in that, in that wilderness temptation. There's already been encounters with demons in this Gospel. And Jesus is coming out on top every single time. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 tells us that Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2 and verse 14 says he came to defeat the one who had power over death, that is, Satan. So here's the point. If Jesus cannot rule over the demonic realm, if Jesus cannot defeat Satan, he's not really the Messiah. He cannot save us from our sins. He's a fraud. We might as well move on and go do something else with our Sundays. So there's a lot at stake in the story. Can Jesus fulfill those prophecies? Can he seize that claim of being the Messiah? And the answer, of course, is indeed, yes, he can. He rules over Satan. He rules over the demonic realm. He defeats Satan. He defeats the demon. He delivers the demoniac. Now, what do we do with all of this? I think this is a call for you and me to trust the transforming power of Jesus. Say, so, man, I've got this stubborn sin habit in my life. I don't think it's going to ever, ever be defeated. It's going to just always be this bad Hey, if Jesus delivered this guy, if he transformed this maniac into a missionary, if he took the guy who was a streaker in a graveyard and turned him into a missionary, the first missionary among the Gentiles, he can deliver you from that stubborn sin pattern. So my marriage, man, it's just it's a train wreck. It's beyond repair. It's irreparable. There's irreconcilable differences. Jesus is able to deliver from that. So we are called to trust the delivering power of Jesus. I want to walk through this. There's several scenes here. I want to notice, draw your attention first to the divine confrontation. The divine confrontation. So Jesus shows up in the country of the, the Gadarenes, also called the Gergesenes. Basically, we're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the Decapolis. We know this is a Gentile region. There's a bunch of pigs, okay? Jewish people eating kosher don't eat pork. And so we're dealing with non-Jewish area. This is unclean. So these unclean animals, pigs, unclean place, tombs, if you read in the Old Testament law, if you touch a body, associate with a body, you're ceremonially unclean. And then there's this guy who's got an unclean spirit. This is sort of Jesus coming in as this pure being into spiritual Mordor, right? Rolling in here to the place that is ruled by Satan. Now, verse 27. Oh, but I just want to note in verse 26, over against Galilee, the opposite of Galilee. So we're outside of the, 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 the land of God's promise and God's people to the land of paganism and darkness. Verse 27 when he went forth to land, when he disembarked, that's what the word there means, so he, the boat, after that long night on the storm-tossed sea, finally comes up on the beach. You kind of hear the boat running into the sand and the water lapping up on the beach that morning as the sun sort of catches them right in the eye. They're coming up on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. As they come on to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had demons for a long time. So Jesus is confronted by this demon. He's confronted by this, this, the domination of this demon over this poor man. Now, this is a, 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 an individual who's said to have demons. He's also said to have an unclean spirit. Sometimes we call this demon possession. Sometimes it's called demonization. We're talking about a supernatural event in which a demon that is a fallen angel that God created 
captivates a man's soul and then in, in, as an effect begins to control his body. So the demon is going to speak through this man. This demon is going to cause this man to do things that he would normally not do, giving him superhuman strength, for example, to break chains. This demon taking control. We're not dealing with some kind of a sickness here. This is not like, oh, mental illness, they attribute a demon. No, this is something different than sickness. Jesus heals sicknesses, and then demon possession is regarded as something entirely different. This is demonic domination. So as this divine confrontation, Jesus is going to confront the demon's domination on this poor man. So why does Satan do this? Satan hates God, right? We can read about the fall of Satan in the Old Testament and his pride. He wants God's position. He's now God's arch enemy, fighting and opposing God every way that he possibly can. And sort of his chief means of fighting against God is to go after God's image in the world. Who's God's image in the world? Human beings. We are made in the image of God after the likeness of God. We are given dignity and this humanity and this ability to have a relationship with God. And Satan's going to go and fight against God by going after the crown jewel of God's creation, after humanity. He's going to go, he'll stop at nothing to dehumanize and destroy mankind. If you notice this man, you notice something about him. Is he's been thoroughly dehumanized. His, his humanity, his uniqueness, his identity has been destroyed and obliterated by this demon. Now, I want you to understand something up front because the big question coming up in your mind is, could this happen to me, right? Like, oh, could this happen to me? Well, one thing we need to understand is for the Christian, this kind of demonization is impossible because we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Greater is he that is in you, 1 John tells us, the Spirit of God, than he that is in the world. So as Christians, we don't need to be running around in constant panic and fear like, oh, no, these demons are haunting me and there's demons that are getting into these objects at home. I grew up hearing people make some bizarre claims at times that, like, Cabbage Patch dolls were demon-possessed and you need to take them out and burn them. Or you, you have a, a movie in your house that's bad, you need to throw it on the fireplace and get rid of the demons. We don't see that in Scripture of demons inhabiting inanimate objects or oppressing Christians. Christians are protected by the Spirit of God. Now, that doesn't mean that demons are not at work in our world. Demons are at work in our world. They are seeking to to deceive man and pull him away from God. But the kind of oppression we see here is unique to the Gospels. If you read the entire Bible from cover to cover, you'll find out in the Old Testament, demonic activity is actually really rare in the Old Testament. You have an evil spirit sent by God that comes and, and afflicts Saul. That's unique. It doesn't happen every day. And then you come along to the Gospels, and there's demonic activity everywhere, and Jesus casting demons out in the synagogue and out of the legion. Then you get to the book of Acts, and there's only two accounts of demonic activity in the book of Acts, two very unique cases. You read the epistles, the letters Paul writes to the church, and there's not one reference whatsoever to dealing with demons. It's not like Paul writes the the first book of exorcisms of, here's what you need to do to exorcise someone from a demon. Uh, We don't see that going on in the Gospels. Which leads me to this conclusion. This kind of demonic oppression was unique during the time of Christ. See, here's Jesus, the Son of God, entering into the world. It's sort of Satan has taken over inappropriately what is God's world. Satan's like, I don't want Jesus to come into my world. So he unleashes all of the demonic forces to oppress people in a way that he hasn't before. In sort of this battle with Jesus, the spiritual battle with the Son of God to fight the presence of Jesus. So we don't see this kind of over-demonic activity, demonic domination today, uh, most of the time. You hear about accounts in some societies, third world countries, where instances of this, of this do happen. I think the primary way Satan works today is through deception, right? He's going to work through deception. Second Corinthians says Satan will appear as an angel of light. The, the main way Satan will capture people's souls is not through this kind of demonic oppression, but is through deception of false teaching. Satan does not care whether you go to hell from living in a graveyard like this man or sitting in a church pew. If he can deceive you to come to church week after week and think, I'm good with God because I'm a good moral person, that works just fine for Satan if he can deceive your soul. Though Satan's approach today, I believe, is different, his aims are the same. His aim is to destroy, to dehumanize, and to damn sinners. How does he deceive? He's going to deceive through false, tr- false gospels. He's going to deceive through the empty promises of sin. He'll say, hey, get into this sin. This sin will make you happy. This sin will satisfy you. And guess what happens? Is it is the law of diminishing returns. And we call that addictions. I'm convinced that behind destructive addictions stand demonic deceptions. St. Augustine, as he's known, Augustine of Hippo. By the way, we're all saints. 
Uh, There's no special people who are especially saints. He said this, describing his own life before he met Christ. The enemy had control of the power of my will, and from it he had fashioned a chain for me, and had bound me in it. For lust is the the product of perverse will, and when when one obeys lust, habit is produced. And when one offers no resistance to habit, necessity is produced. Wow. What an amazing description of addictions. Lust, desire. You begin to obey that, and then a habit is formed. And then you don't resist the habit anymore. Then it becomes a need that you can't break free from. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. So we look at this man, looking back here in verse 27. Jesus comes. He meets this man with demons. He's dominated by demons. It's a divine confrontation with demonic domination. It says he was out of the city. Which just tells me, tells me this. This man wasn't born this way. One time, he lived in the city with everyone else. He had, he had a job. He had normal social relations with other people. And then one day, Satan takes control of his life and drives this man into this maniacal state. He used to live in the city. He's now wearing no clothes. He doesn't live in any house, but he instead lives in the tombs. This is complete dehumanization. You see, you see sin always dehumanizes. God made us in his image to to live in holiness before him, to live with this amazing dignity of being his image bearers. Sin always dehumanizes. This goes back again to Genesis 3. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked. God comes up with a remedy for their nakedness. He makes those coats of skins that point to to the, the work of Jesus to cover our sins, to give them some level of dignity, right, against the shame of nakedness. This, this nakedness this man is undergoing is simply a loss of dignity, a loss of humanity that comes through the oppression of sin. So here he was, a, a streaker in a graveyard. You can't get any more pathetic than that, living among the tombs. You need to understand how tombs work. They weren't like burying people in the ground. They're not even like the, the weird tombs you see over in New Orleans that are above ground. The way they buried people back here is they would take the bodies, wrap them in cloth, put them in a cave, roll a stone in front of the cave. So we're talking about in the hillside, in these little caves in the hillside. Here he is living in a cave with, a, with rotting corpses all around, with bones all around, with disgusting vermin all around. This is just a hideous, pathetic state that he lives in where his dignity, his humanity has been destroyed. His association with the tombs, of course, reflects an obsession with death. Don't we see that in our culture today? where people are like, man, skull and crossbones and everything, I'm wearing all this black and I'm just obsessed with death and with the demonic and with all of these horrible, the work of Satan to get people captured in this deception. So here's a man, he's trapped in a living death. By the way, there's no indication that this man invited this demonic oppression. This is Satan taking control. Every person who does not know Jesus as Savior lives in the realm ruled by Satan. Ephesians 2 tells us that we live in the spiritual death. We walk under the prince of the power of the air. He works in the children of disobedience. We're under satanic domination without Jesus. Here he is wandering in the abode of the dead, trapped in a living death, clad in the wardrobe of hell. This dehumanizing power of Satan in his life. Can't help but thinking of the dignity-destroying, dehumanizing effects of sexual perversion. In our world today, people are like, man, I want to I just do whatever I want to do. Evolution has sold us, sold us the lie that we are simply animals. And the, the modern day sexual revolution has told you, go ahead and act like an animal. If you want to do it, go ahead and do it and do it out in public and make sure everyone celebrates it. So dehumanizing, so dignity destroying, so humiliating to where people have no more sense of shame. The tragic effects of sin. So while Satan's strategy has changed, his aims are the same. So Jesus, this divine confrontation, confronting the demon's oppression, the demon's domination. But now in verse 28, the demon begins making some demands. When he saw Jesus, and now we're getting this, this, this clash coming to a head. So you picture this as an invasion. Jesus comes in the, the landing craft onto the beach there of Gadara. He comes out, the guy comes running down, and here's the big clash. Between, between this battle, by the way, between this man and Jesus, it's sort of a proxy battle between Jesus and Satan. So the demon begins making demands. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beg thee, do not torment me. So at the sight of Jesus, the demon shrieks in absolute terror. 
This is not just a, oh, it's Jesus, but this is a, just sort of an unearthly kind of supernatural screech that comes out of the man. The demon has such control of the man now. And by the way, it's not just one demon. It's at least 2,000 demons that have taken control over him, taken control of his vocal cords, taken control of his speech. He shrieks in terror and flails himself at Jesus' feet. Now, this is not worship as, oh, I bow before Jesus, the king of the universe, but this is groveling in terror. Now, why does the demon do this? Because the demon recognizes Jesus as God's son, and as God's son, guess what? He has authority over demons. This is not a battle between equals that Jesus has to arm wrestle with Satan and see who's going to win. No, Jesus is the one who created Satan. He was Lucifer, this angel of light who then falls away from God. He made the angels. He's the creator. He's supreme. He has all authority, and even Satan must bow to him. Remember the story of Job? Satan wants to go after God, and he says, the way I'm going to do it is go after his chief servant, Job. He has to go into God's presence and get permission. God has to give Satan the green light before he goes after Job. Why? Because Satan is on a leash, and holding the leash is God. So Martin Luther said something like this, though the devil is the devil, at least he is God's devil. He is, he is controlled and under the authority of God. Even as he hates God, his authority is limited, and one day God will destroy him. So here comes these demons casting themselves at Jesus' feet. And then they make this cry, what have I to do with thee? I like the way this kind of comes out in Greek. You don't have to know Greek to just hear how sort of creepy this sounds. moi kaisoi. What to me, to you, there's a complete antithesis. I'm here and you're here. Why are you bothering me? This is what the demons are saying. Leave us alone. And astoundingly, verse 28, they recognize that Jesus, did you catch that? He is the Son of God Most High. The demon recognizes truly who Jesus is where everyone else missed it. Back in verse 25, the disciples asked and were flummoxed by this. Who then is this? Answer verse 28, the son of the most high God. The demon answers the question that the disciples asked back in verse 25. Is God's son means he has God's authority. So this is a confrontation between untainted holiness and filthy evil. This is a confrontation between Satan and God, between good and evil, between eternal and temporal. This is a divine confrontation. And the demon begs, I beseech thee. I have to beg. Notice the demons are not in a place of making demands, but begging. I beseech, I beg, torment me not. Now, why does the demon say that? Matthew adds this phrase in his account. We get this account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the synoptic gospels as they're known. We can get them and compare them and see what's standing out. In Matthew's gospel, the demons say this, torment me not before the time. See, God's appointed a day of final judgment where all of the demonic forces, Satan himself, will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And until that time, the, the Satan has some limited ability to go out and to, to, to work his evil purposes. His demons have limited authority to go out and work their evil purposes. There are some demons, according to Jude 6, that are already in prison in the bottomless pit. Right? Perhaps those demons that were at work before the days of Noah... They, they, they really destroyed the world before Noah's day. God is an act of judgment, locks them, confines them in the prison of the bottomless pit. And when you read Revelation, by the way, you find out that the key to the bottomless pit is open and these demons are released once again in, in a final, final battle between God and Satan. So these, these demons have some limited freedom. They're saying, Jesus, don't torment us. Don't send us to hell before Judgment Day. Judgment Day's come early. What's going on here? That's what they're begging. Torment us not. That's why we see in verse... 31, they besought him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Uh, the abyss is literally a pit that has no bottom, not to go into the bottomless pit. The arrival of Jesus for these demons signaled the early arrival of divine judgment against the demons. And they are absolutely terrified before Jesus, recognizing he holds all the power. This confrontation continues in verse 29. Notice this is all in this is a parenthetical statement Luke provides, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Uh, as soon as Jesus met him, he had, he had perhaps said something about this, like this, I command you to depart from the man. Jesus had issued a command previously to this, as soon as he met the man, that the demon depart from him. The demons, of course, have to obey Jesus. They're required to obey, obey Jesus. There's not, no other choice here. So we're getting this chain of explanatory comments in verse 29. The reason the demon is freaking out in verse 28 is Jesus had commanded the demon to leave the man, and being kicked out of the man meant that they would have to go to the bottomless pit where they would be confined for all eternity. 
So the demon freaks out. Why? Because Jesus had commanded the man. Now, why had Jesus commanded the demons to leave? Verse 29 continues. For, okay, when you see for in Bible study, it's explanation. So demons freak out. Why? Jesus had commanded them to leave the man. Why? Because the demons oftentimes had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he broke the bands and was driven of the demon into the wilderness. The reason Jesus commands the demons to depart from the man is Jesus is confronting the destruction the demons have wrought in his life. The demon had seized the man many times, is what the word is. Just at a whim, the demons would seize him over and over and over again. In other words, Jesus commands the demons to depart from the man because Jesus is deeply moved by the pathetic plight of the man. Now, notice how the townspeople had reacted. Whenever the demons would, would take him, they would try to chain him up with hand and foot and, and guard him, right? There's no concern for the man's condition. Just let's try to limit what's going on here. Let's lock him away in a cell. Try to limit his destruction and the fear that he brings to us. Absolutely no concern for him. By the way, at the end of the story, when Jesus heals the man, there's no one coming along being like, this is amazing, we have our friend back. No, they, they, they hold him at arm's length. These people are hard-hearted, completely uncompassionate compared to the compassion of Jesus. These episodes were so bad. These episodes of demonic possession were so bad. The townspeople callously chained the man, only to have him break the chains by the superhuman strength given to him by the demon, and the demon would drive him out into the wilderness, out into this isolation. By the way, we're living in a world where there is an absolute pandemic of isolation. There was a study that came out a couple weeks ago from Pew Research Group that shows that men don't have friends, right? Like, just don't. We're just kind of off little lone rangers doing our own thing. One of the effects of sin since the Garden of Eden has, to been, has been to isolate people. Sin not only ruins our relationship with God, sin ruins our relationships horizontally. Sin brings about divorces. Sin splits churches. Sin destroys friendships. And I think Satan's having a, uh, having a field day, driving everyone off into their own little corner where they're over there with their cell phone, no human interaction. God made us to interact with other people. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And this pandemic of isolation is a result of sin working in our, in our hearts and in our society. So Jesus is moved by compassion for the man's plight. This is awesome, to see the compassion of Jesus. He looks at you in your sin, in your brokenness. You're like, man, my life is messed up. Sin has brought tremendous pain in my life. Maybe I've been a victim of someone else's sin. Maybe I've been the victim of my own sin. There's lingering effects, lingering scabs, lingering hurt. Jesus is touched with the feelings of your infirmities. He is the great physician, not only of the body, but of the soul. And he moves towards us even when everyone else is like, I, I don't want to hang out with you. When everyone else is like, I want to avoid you and stay away from you. Because uh, oh, the, the, Jesus is like, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His arms stand wide open to welcome sinners. To come with your brokenness, come with your sin, come with your hurt, come with your pain, come with your depression, come with your sickness. And he's a welcome and I have a heart of compassion. That's his response to sin. He, the great physician, longs to bring healing grace to your sin-sick soul. He's able, he's willing. I promise that's my longest point. Maybe my second longest point. Maybe my third. No, no, I think that is the longest point. Uh, that's the divine... Uh, divine um, What's the word I have up there? Confrontation, sorry. Divine confrontation. Let's move into the second scene here. The divine conquest. The divine conquest. So there's this confrontation that happens now. Jesus is going to go toe-to-toe with this demon, and of course he's going to win. So we pick up in verse 30. And Jesus asked him, saying, what is thy name? Jesus is taking control of the situation, taking the initiative here, because he's God. And he, the demon, said, legion. I kind of imagine that just blah, being, being shrieked out. Because many demons had entered in unto him. A legion, of course, is a military term. A Roman legion typically consisted of 6,000 soldiers, plus horses and all the other things that go along with an army. We know from Mark's gospel there's 2,000 pigs. The point here is not, man, how many demons were there? The point being, there's a bunch of demons that have taken control of this poor man's body and afflicting him. And the idea of a legion, I think Luke wants us to think of a Roman legion. Listen, when the Romans came in to occupy a territory, they weren't out there passing out cheese to the locals, right? They were pillaging, they were stealing, they were robbing, they were raping, they were murdering. The, the occupation of a Roman military force was terrifying. This is to show that the occupation of these demons in this man's soul was one of pillaging and destruction. 
So the demons, so Jesus says, what is your name? Legion, because many demons were entered into him. Verse 31, they besought him. So here's the demons again. They're begging. Jesus is here. The demons are here. They must obey Jesus. They're begging him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. By the way, that word abyss, if you want to see that showing up in other places, Revelation 20 and verse 3, uh, Romans 10 and verse 7, it is the abode of the dead. It is what we would refer to as Hades or hell, which will one day be cast into the lake of fire, the place where some demons currently are bound in chains. He does not want to be sent to the eternal prison of demons. These demons don't want to go there just yet. So as an alternative, they're trying to negotiate with Jesus. Verse 32, And there was there a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain. By the way, the geography, there's a village called Cursa that is right on the Sea of Galilee, which fits the geography here perfectly. There are tombs honeycombing the hillside. There's a cliff coming down into the Sea of Galilee. It fits perfectly. So this is a historical account. There's some people who are like, ah, this is just a legend. Like, demons, come on. Like, nobody believes that stuff. No, this is a historical account, a real place, a real time, a real person. So verse 32, there's these pigs feeding on the mountain. And they besought him that he would allow them, permit them to enter into them. And he permitted them. So Jesus is still getting his way. He's still going to kick the demons out of the man. And he's going to, sure, the demons, you guys want to go into pigs? Be my guest. Go for it. He permits it. You see, without divine permission, Satan is powerless. And by the way, you and I don't have the ability to control Satan. There's some bizarre notions out in our world today where you go around rebuking Satan, and I rebuke Satan, and I rebuke this demon and that demon and all these things. You and I don't have the ability to do that. Jesus has the ability to do that, and he's already done it. Satan is a defeated foe, though he still roams, seeking whom he may devour. His doom is certain. All evil is under divine control. Right? Isn't that a comforting? You're going, you go home today and you turn on CNN or Fox News or whatever propaganda source you want, and you're like, oh no, there's horrible things happening in our world. There's evil in our world, and it's running rampant, and I'm, I'm going to get scared. Let me come up with a conspiracy theory to try to make it all make sense. Yeah, there's evil in our world. Satan is at work in our world, and God is in control. Right? Even evil itself bows to the purposes of God. Even sin itself will redound to the ultimate and eternal glory of God. What people mean for evil, God means for good. And you want exhibit A, you look at the cross. There is the height of human evil and wickedness and rebellion in our world. And the book of Acts tells us that it was preordained by God. It was plan A for God to redeem the world. And he did it through what? Man's evil. Even in Revelation, when the mark of the, when the, mark of the beast is happening and Satan's controlling the world, that's where we would be like, man, evil's really gotten out of control. Revelation tells us that God put it in the hearts of the nations to give their kingdoms to the beast so that they would accomplish his purposes. So even evil is accomplishing the purposes of God. Even evil, even sin is under the control of God to bring him ultimate glory. The demons have to beg for permission. So with Jesus' permission, this is where the fun part of the story happens. This is sort of the part of the movie that we're all like, let's wait for this part. This is the part we really like. The the, the demons leave the man and they go into the pigs, and immediately the pigs go crazy and run off a cliff. Uh, That's like the shortest battle in history, right? There's some really short battles. If you go over to Blakely uh, Battlefield, right? Anybody ever been to Blakely? Only a few of you. You need to go to Blakely. That's sort of our local history. One of the last battles of the Civil War. And you see all the trenches and everything has been put up here, right? They dug all these works to protect Mobile from that side as the Union Army was coming around from that side of the bay. And they build this big old fort over there, Fort Blakely. You know how long that battle lasted? It was about 30 minutes. Right? That's it. They had all this work building these big trenches and putting guns out there and putting those little spiky trees out in front of them. And the battle's over in 30 minutes, like shortest battle ever. Actually, this one's shorter. Jesus says one word. All right, demons, you're out of here. Battle's over. He wins. Right? But we've got to make it more dramatic. We need a, a visible representation of the fact that he wins. And it's the pigs all running off the cliff. So we see this in verse 33. Then the demons went out of the man and entered into the swine. So they need some kind of physical body to inhabit. I don't exactly know why that's always the big question. But it seems that demons want to be at work in the physical universe, and they need some kind of a physical form through which to do that seems to be the implication. But again, that's not the point. They enter into the swine, and the herd ran violently off the cliff into the lake and were choked. And in Mark's gospel has them, they were choking, sort of one by one, drowning, bobbing in the water, squealing. The demons depart the man. The battle is won. 
For the first time in perhaps decades, this man's humanity returns to him. For the first time in a long time, he is rid of the dehumanizing forces of demonic evil. But if you're this guy, you're like, how do I know they're not going to come back and do it again? Right? You ever been there where you've gotten your hopes, like, finally, this time, I've, I've finally kicked this habit in the teeth, I'm done with it. But man, you've been down that road before, right? Like, man, we've tried this before, we've tried that before. How does it, how's he to know that this is a final victory? I think that's one of the reasons Jesus allowed the pigs to do their thing running off the cliff, because this guy would have indelibly etched into his memory the vision of pig after pig after pig hurtling off the cliff into the Sea of Galilee. I mean, that would be pretty memorable, right? If you saw 2,000 pigs all run off a cliff together and drown in a lake, you would remember that for the rest of your life, right? You, You would never forget that. This would be the man's visible reminder, Jesus delivered me from what I could not deliver myself. So can you imagine the scene? A herd of 2,000 pigs all frantically flying over a precipice. It's kind of funny, right? And then drowning in the ocean. It would have been noisy, all the oink, 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 as they all go off the thing and splash into the water as they drown. So can pigs fly? Well, these ones definitely did. Or as one preacher did, they went and did a swine drive, dive off the cliff. So there's your pig pun for the day. Why the death of the pigs? Why did Jesus allow this? People freak out about it, like, man, Jesus is killing pigs, he's killing creation, this is bad, oh no, Jesus can't be good. Well, for one thing, he's exposing the murderous evil of the demons, right? The, the second the demons get control of the pigs, they destroy the pigs. This is what they wanted to do to the man, and just simply restrained by the providence and kindness of God. This is what evil looks like when God takes his hands off, it destroys Right? The, the lie that Satan wants you to believe this morning is you can have sin in your life and you can control it and it won't mess with you. Like, oh man, you can just have a little bit of sin over here. You can have a little addiction over here. You can have a little bit of lying and things in these different corners of your life and I'll be, be okay. I'll be able to control it. I'll be the exception. That's, that's a lie from the pit of hell designed to deceive. So the death of the pigs exposed the murderous evil of the demons. But more than anything, it was proof that the man was totally delivered. Totally delivered. And by the way, isn't one soul infinitely more valuable than thousands of pigs? Right? Like, I like bacon, but no comparison between bacon and a human soul. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying by doing this, this man's soul is worth infinitely more than anything physical. Infinitely more valuable than these pigs. So we see that this power of Jesus on display in this divine conquest. Now we pick up in verse 34, we begin to see the, the responses to this. We begin to see the evidence of it. And when they that fed them saw what was done, they fled. Okay, so there's all these pig herders out there. There's got to be probably dozens of them with 2,000 pigs. But imagine herding pigs is like, I don't know, like a hard job, and you, they don't just sort of stand there, but you've got to make sure they don't do dumb things like run off cliffs. Those who fed them, when they saw what was done, they fled. They ran away. This is the leave your stuff and go running, shrieking away in in terror kind of running away, right? They're they're, they're fleeing. This is scary stuff. By the way, everybody knew about this demoniac, right? Mark's gospel tells us that people who walked down that road, they knew, hey, he lives up in that cave. You don't go that way. You go, you go, you, you stay away from him. He terrified people. But as terrified as they were of the man who had the legion of demons... The Jesus who could defeat the demons was far more terrifying. The reason they're running away is not like, oh man, the pigs just scared us. They're running away because Jesus scared them. Someone who has this kind of power is far more frightening than any demon. So they run away in terror, and they tell it in the city and in the country. In other words, everywhere they're going, like, guys, you won't believe what we just saw. Maybe these guys are trying to just sort of save their own bacon, so to speak, because they're like, it was our job to protect the pigs. All the pigs are now floating in the Sea of Galilee. Right? We want to explain how that happened. We didn't have an insurance policy on the pigs to, to cover drowning as, an, as a potential episode. And this is what happened. Here they're running, fleeing, telling everyone what happened. Obviously, if we heard that story, like, hey, guys, you won't believe it. Down in Dauphin Island, 2,000 pigs just drowned. And there's a guy down there who used to be crazy who's now not crazy. But like, let's go check it out. Like, I don't believe you. Let's, let's go see this. If this is a pre-social media day, we'd all get in the car and go down to see what's going on. So verse 35, they went out to see what was done. So all the people in the town, in the country, in the, in the region around are like, let's go see what happened. And they came to Jesus, verse 35, and found the man. He's no, no longer a demoniac. He's now, his humanity has come back to him. Out of whom the devils were departed. They're gone and gone for good. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
They also which saw it told them by what means he that was possessed of the demons was healed. By the way, that word there is the word sozo, how he was saved. Not just physical healing, spiritual salvation. What a scene this would have been. I think pigs are still bobbing in the water. The disciples are probably like, whoa, that was pretty crazy. And then here's this man who before was running around like a madman, is now sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus. By the way, that, that posture, being at the feet of Jesus. Remember the, the woman who anointed the feet of Jesus? Where was she? At the feet of Jesus. The man who was delivered, where is he? At the feet of Jesus. The Samaritan in Luke 17, who Jesus heals him of his leprosy, he falls where? At the feet of Jesus. This is the place of a disciple. He's taken up the ranks with the twelve. He is one of the disciples, a follower, a learner of Jesus. He was completely and utterly transformed. So rather than ranting and running around, he is now sitting at the feet of Jesus. Where he was restless before, he's now filled with peace. Before he was naked, now he is clothed. Maybe the disciples had like an extra coat in the boat, and Jesus is like, hey, give this guy a coat. Restore his, his dignity to him. Before he was out of his mind, now he is in his right mind, completely and totally restored. So verse 36 those also saw it, which told them by what means he was possessed of the demon was healed. In other words, they tell Jesus did this. This man has been saved. That word healed means saved. He undid everything that Satan had distorted. The picture had been fuzzy and distorted. Now it's brought into beautiful restoration. He's fully restored. Isolation has become restoration. Where he was before, off in desert places, he's now part of a community sitting at the feet of Jesus with other disciples. That's what the gospel does. You become a Christian, and you're made part of a family. That's what the church is. A bunch of people who were isolated, who were distant, who God has brought together. That's why gathering with the church family is so important, because we've been brought into this relationship with each other. Oppression by demons is replaced by submission to Jesus. Listen, you will answer to someone. No one is bossless. We all have a boss to whom we answer. Either it is sin and Satan and self, or it's Jesus. We like to believe today, man, we're, we, we, we have experienced liberation. We have you know, all these liberation movements. We're going to be liberated, do whatever I want to do. Listen, that is the worst tyranny you can ever answer to, is the tyranny of your own sinful heart. Far better is the rule of King Jesus in your life. So Romans 6 says, being made free from sin, you became slaves of Jesus Christ. Either you're a slave of sin or you're a slave of Jesus. Which one are you this morning? His nudity was replaced by clothing. His mindless screaming is now replaced by thoughtful proclamation of truth. Completely, totally transformed. You see, the work of Jesus totally affected every area of the man's life. When when you get saved, okay, when when you bow the knee to Jesus, when you get born again, it does not simply change your destiny. It's not like your address now changes, you're on your way to heaven and nothing else changes. There's, there's, a, there's a false teaching called easy believism that just says, pray a little prayer, believe in Jesus, and you're on your way to heaven and nothing needs to change in your life unless you want it to. No, when you get saved, Jesus takes up residence and he transforms not only your destiny, but your direction. Before you were going after sin, now you're going after Jesus. Not only your destiny, but also your disposition. He gives you a new heart where you begin to love Jesus, you begin to pursue holiness, you begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit. That's how extensive this divine conquest is. We sang earlier, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all, reign within, and let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. Right? God is waging a war in our souls to conquer every corner of it, and that war continues until the day that we're in his presence with Jesus Christ. This divine conquest reminds us that sin might dominate, but Jesus can deliver. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11 makes a stunning statement. It gives us a list of all these sins. Uh, In fact, I want to just read these verses to you. Because there's some sins today that people think are, these are our identity. I was born that way. Jesus can't deliver me from that. Listen to these sins. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, if your life doesn't change, you're not actually saved. Be not deceived, okay, because we have the potential to be deceived. Neither fornicators. You'd be like, oh, I'm just a sexual addict, I can't change it. That fornicator, that's what that word's referring to. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. 
All of these sins. Now, he's not saying if you've done that one time, you can't be saved. Because the next verse says this, And such were some of you. God delights in taking people who were fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals and addicts and and extortioners and thieves and transforming them by the gospel. Such were some of you. The, the, The gospel takes sin and puts it into the past tense. But ye are washed, that's who you are now, washed by the blood of Jesus. Ye are sanctified, holy in God's sight. Ye are justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And it's a work that God continues. But a couple of those sins, effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind, those are referring to the two sides of a homosexual relationship. We live in a world today where people believe this bizarre notion that gender identity is fluid but sexual orientation is fixed. Right? So, well, I can be a guy, I can be a girl, whatever I identify as. But my orientation, whether heterosexual or homosexual, that's fixed from birth. Like that's, that's a contradiction. People believe that that is their identity and they can never be free from that particular sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 declares that that can be one of those sins that we put into the past tense. You can be delivered from same-sex attraction. You can be delivered from crippling adultery. You can be delivered from that propensity to steal and to lie by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He puts unbreakable sin patterns under the blood, behind the cross, into past tense because of his power. Not us trying really hard. The gospel is not try really, really hard to quit doing those sins. Make a list and just stop doing them. No, the gospel is you can't. This man could not deliver himself. The people in the city could not deliver him. Good works cannot deliver you. Jesus can The gospel is Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And he rose again showing that he has defeated sin and death. And it's a call for you to repent and rely on Jesus. Now, the transformation may not be as instantaneous as it was for this man. It's a lifelong process of growing in Christ. And sometimes old sins that you used to struggle with will rear their ugly head again. But now you've got the Spirit of God to assist you in that war against sin. The divine conquest. So we see this confrontation between the Son of God and these demons. We see this conquest where Jesus, just a word, wins the victory. He can do for you what he did for this man. But finally, notice the divine commission. Verse 37. And the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them. By the way, do you notice how many besotting is going on in this passage? The demons are begging Jesus to do things. The region of the Gadarenes, these are all the local townspeople who used to know this guy, Uh, who ran him out of town, they're beseeching Jesus to leave them, to depart from them. For they were taken with great fear. That's one of the common themes through this section of Luke's gospel. When the disciples see Jesus calm the storm, they were amazed and fearful. That's what back in verse 25 tells us. They see the power of Jesus unveiled, and it scares the daylights out of them. These people see the, the power of Jesus over the demonic realm, and it terrifies them to such an extent that they don't want Jesus to be there anymore. In the next section, Jesus will raise someone from the dead, and that also scares the daylights out of everyone. I mean, you think about all three. If we were to see those things happen, and we see that kind of display of divine power, it would scare us. So they're terrified. But here's the difference. The disciples' fear led them to ask a question. Who then is this? Their fear led them to press in to find out more. These people's fear led them to draw back and say, we don't want Jesus around. You see, that same emotion of fear can either bring you closer to God or drive you away from God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? You have this fear of God is holy and I'm a sinner and I need, that, that, I need my sin to be dealt with and it brings you to the foot of the cross. Or that same fear is, man, God is holy, I'm a sinner, I'm going to try to run from God. I'm going to try to hide in the fig bushes. I'm going to try to deal with my sin myself. I'm going to be terrified of God and try to downplay God and dismiss God and ignore God. The same emotion of fear can either bring you to God or take you away from Him. For the, for the Gadarenes, it led them to reject Him. Why? Listen, if Jesus has this kind of authority, command demons, that means He has authority over my life. That means I'm accountable to Him. These people would sooner banish the Savior of souls than submit to the Savior of souls. And that's maybe where you are today. You're like, yeah, this Christianity thing seems kind of nice. But I just kind of want a Sunday morning Christianity, right? Where I, you know, I roll into church and I go through the motions and I'm on the membership rolls. But that's as far as I wanted to go. I don't want this to actually, like, change my life. That's kind of where the gatherings were. Like, yeah, Jesus, we don't want Jesus getting in too close and changing things too much. We don't want to become fanatics here or anything like that. 
They would sooner banish him than submit to him. They're gripped with this fear. I think this shows us something of the depravity of man's heart. Sometimes we think, man, if only people had enough evidence, then they would believe in Jesus. This shows us here, they, they, they're staring at Jesus in the face. They've seen him work a miracle that proves he's God, and they're like, uh-uh, we don't believe him. That is the nature of man's heart, right? Unless the Spirit of God does something in our hearts, that's, that's how we respond to Jesus. Instead of falling down in faith before Jesus, they reject him in fear. Instead of repenting of their heartless treatment of their fellow man, they kick Jesus out of the countryside. So notice what Jesus does. He went up to the ship and returned back again. What tragic words. They reject Jesus, and so Jesus leaves. He leaves them to their fate, and we have no other record of Jesus going back to this region. This is it. He's going to harden them. He's going to blind them. One writer says this, After his light is removed, nothing but darkness and blindness remains. When his spirit is taken away, our hearts harden into stones. When his guidance ceases, we are wrenched into crookedness. The most dangerous thing that can happen to your soul is for God to say, have it your way. Have it your way. Indeed, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, concludes this way. He says, in the final estimation, there's only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Either you can have it God's way, or you can have it your way. It's a tragic story. But notice the commission, verse 38. The man out of whom the demons were departed besought him. So there's another beseeching going on. So the demons beseech Jesus. The Gadarenes beseech Jesus. And the man now beseeches Jesus that he might be with him. He's like, I want to be a disciple. I want to hang out with you. I want to walk with you. I want to learn from you. But Jesus sent him away. This is shocking. He acceded to the demand of the demons in letting them go into the pigs. He acceded to the demands of the Gadarenes by leaving the country. But this disciple, he says no to. Sometimes Jesus loves you too much to give you what you want. Right? The guy wants to be with Jesus, but the time is not ready. He's probably a Gentile. The Jewish mission is not over. And so Jesus is like, no, not right now. Verse 39, return to thine own house, okay, your own family, your own people, and show how great things God has done unto thee. And he went his way and published, preached is the word there, throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done for him. So the man wants to be with Jesus. That is the natural desire of the disciple. I want to be with him. I want to know him. If you're a Christian, that should be the throbbing heartbeat of your life. I want Jesus. I want to be with him. I want to know him. I want to pursue him. I want to understand his word. I want to talk to him. That's the desire. But Jesus says no. Why? Because he's got something greater for him. This is sort of a microcosm of what Jesus does later on. He's going to leave this earth, and the disciples are like, man, we want to be with Jesus, but he's like, no, I want you to stay and go make disciples of the nations. This is the great commission in sort of a, in, in a nutshell. Jesus is going to leave, but he's going to leave this guy behind to be his witness in this particular region. Return to your own people. This is going to be the first missionary to the Gentiles. What a candidate for missions, right? He's not a, he didn't grow up in church. He didn't go to any Bible colleges. He didn't have a degree. Here's a guy who just minutes before was running through the tombs in his birthday suit is now dressed for success with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not a top-notch missionary candidate. This is shocking. This is Jesus picking the local drug dealer to be a missionary. Why? So he gets all the glory. He says, go back to your own family. Conversion, you get converted by the gospel, it necessitates evangelism. If you've been saved, you're like, man, I've bowed the knee to Jesus, I've been born again. Jesus expects you to tell other people about what he has done for your soul. You don't have to be a theologian. You can simply recount, this is what he did for me. If you know enough truth to be saved... You know enough truth to go tell someone else how to be saved. All right? If you know enough truth to be saved, you know enough truth to go tell someone else how to be saved. And we need to be faithful in doing this, going to our family. Notice he sends them to, doesn't send them to Timbuktu, but he sends them back home. Go back and tell your story. Go back and tell you what great things God has done for you. Now, one last note. Notice verse 39. Go tell, Jesus says, tell him what God has done for you. And he went his way and told how great things Jesus had done for him. Like, oh, did he disobey? You're supposed to tell what God did. He's going to say what Jesus did. Guess what? Jesus is God. I think this man understood what few other people understood. The one who delivered him was God in the flesh. To say what God had done for him and what Jesus had done for him were one and the same because Jesus is God. 
So I recognize I've gone a little long, but I want to just conclude with this, and we will dispense with singing our, our final hymn. The passage Bill read earlier, Psalm 40, verse 3, talks about how he has rescued us from a miry clay, put our feet on a rock, established our goings. He's put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. And then verse 10, I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. If God's delivered you, who are you telling about it? If God has rescued you and saved you, who are you declaring it to? Who are you speaking that to? He's given us a new standing, a new song, a new message so that he would be glorified. So Jesus is supreme over everything. May we celebrate that. Let's close in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we praise you for your awesome and mighty power to save.